You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Who are you feeding? Who is your audience? Is it the 1% of the 1%? And that is what is so beautiful and amazing and artistic. Uh, Or do you want to feed a community? I agree. Um, Hello, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I would just like to begin tonight by acknowledging that we're gathered here on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, So thank you all for braving the wind and the hail to join us this evening to celebrate Jess Ho's incredible book, Raised by Wolves. Um, This event is presented by the Wheeler Centre as part of the Melbourne City Reads series, which is generously supported by George and Rosa Morstan. Uh, So I'm going to just introduce you first, Jess. Jess Ho is best known for their techno-prisoners' opinions on the hospitality industry. They were the food and drink editor for Time Out Melbourne and have also been published in The Guardian, Food Service Rep, Virgin Voyeur, Time and Tide and Eater, and has contributed to many restaurant guides and cookbooks. They've also been a judge on a commercial network food show, but don't ask them about it unless they've had something very strong to drink. That's the official introduction. So I'm especially proud to be here tonight because I've been very lucky to call Jess a friend for the past decade or so, and I'm very proud of them for writing this unbelievable book. Uh, It's brave, it's caustically funny, uh, and it's very poignant, and all of those things are how I would describe Jess. Um, Now, I asked Jess if they wanted to do a reading to kick off tonight and they politely demurred in trademark Jess fashion, which is kind of like being Muay Thai kicked in the head. So instead, I'm going to read a paragraph that I feel sums up the Jess I know and love. Uh, So to set the scene, uh, Jess is in the backyard with their dad. Then my dad did something completely irresponsible but completely in line with his parenting style. He handed his cleaver over to me as he held down the neck of this bird and said, you do it. There was no question as to what I was going to do. One of my strongest memories as a child is of my dad laying out Chinese newspaper on the tiles of the kitchen once a week, securing his chopping board and smashing through the bones of a whole steamed chicken with the proficiency of the men at the Chinese barbecue chop shop. I knew I wasn't going to tickle this bird to death with the blunt end of a cleaver, which had travelled all the way to Taylor's Lakes from Dad's destitute village in Hong Kong. I was a very weedy kid, and swinging this cleaver took the force of my entire body. Naturally, I did not kill the chicken in one stroke. It took a few chops, accompanied by my dad laughing at how difficult it was for me to kill something that was pinned down like Catherine of Aragon making way for the Reformation. Well, another kind of reformation was happening because when the head of the chicken finally rolled off the stack of bricks and I watched my dad drain the blood into a bowl to be steamed into jelly for congee, pluck its feathers and remove its guts, I felt some kind of confidence for the first time in my life. Sure, I had killed a living thing, but the infectious disease that my mind inoculated it with did not exist. And I watched it literally being stripped down to become nothing more than food. 
This is probably how King Henry VIII felt when he established the Church of England. It's way too much power for a seven-year-old to handle, just like the Catholic Church, my father created a monster. I slowly got over all the things that made me anxious. Dirt, let me roll in it. The cold, I'll run around in a singlet for the whole afternoon. Being identified as Chinese, yeah, just look at my face. Friends, don't need them. Not excelling at piano, my piano teacher can suck it. Bullying, I've killed a chicken, I can kill you too. Not finishing homework? Are you kidding? I finished it in class while completely ignoring the authority of my teachers. Death? I had no idea what it was like before I was born and I'll have no idea when I'm gone. So, thank you. I hope that wasn't as painful as uh, making you read it. Um, <laughs> we're no longer friends. <laughs> It's all over. So I feel like we are currently, you know, it ha seems to happen cyclically. Like every couple of years, we end up in a bit of a yes chef cultural moment. Um, I have a theory that people who are obsessed with outrageous kitchen narratives have never actually worked in hospo. Uh, what do you think the enduring appeal is for readers? I think you can look at reality TV in all its forms and understand that people love watching other people behave badly <laughs> and go, oh, I'm better than them. I'm not this person. And, you know, obviously horrible kitchen stories are way more interesting than rich people behaving badly because there are only, like, a few things they can do. Um, you know, accidentally lose all their money, <laughs> accidentally lose all their money naked, accidentally lose all their money in public. <laughs> naked. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because I know that you always said you wouldn't write a memoir and I did also and now we've both published memoirs. <laughs> um, whoops, what, what was it that, that pushed you over the edge finally? Oh, we were in lockdown and I was so bored and someone asked me and I was like, fine, fine. <laughs> Everyone's always asking me about all these stories that I have about hospitality and I was like, fine, and now you will ask me no more. I can go, just read it. It's like when people go, what restaurant should I go to? I don't know, read the guide I wrote. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can relate to the lockdown thing. I mean, what was, did you find that, because writing obviously is a fairly kind of solitary uh, pursuit at the best of times, that solitude of lockdown, did you find that, um, I guess, a sort of fruitful place to be in creatively or was it a bit more of a white knuckle hell ride? Uh, so I had lunch with the publisher today and um, described to him my method of getting the book done, which came to him as no surprise. Uh, the way I did it was I went, okay, you would like 70,000 words. This is my deadline. Uh, let's do some basic maths. <laughs> um, this is my blue sky uh, self-given deadline. Uh, and I also hate delivering things on time because for me, on time is late. Um, I, I may or may not have filed this a month and a half early. You look at your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> what? Um, yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm a nerd. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you said it. I didn't have to, to sell you out. Um, I think, you know, we, we swapped a lot of texts during our respective drafting processes, which were of the kind of blood-curdling existential crisis variety. What, um, 
how did you approach that first draft? You know, because what I think is really interesting about this book is there's a non-linearity to it, which I think is really striking. Um, and that I think maybe some people probably wouldn't expect from this type of memoir, or memoir full stop. Um, did, you, did you set out to write in that mode or did that kind of come to you through the drafting process? Well, my first chapter outline was like, I don't want any of me in this. I'm going to write this as a survival guide to hospitality for, uh, to warn people about what they're getting into, not necessarily warn them away from the industry, mm. but be like, if you're going to do it, don't be a dickhead. Um, and it worked for the first couple of chapters, but then it got really boring uh, mm. because it's kind of like, it, it's, it's like a self-help guide. Um, there's only so many self-help guides you can read. And in hospitality, they're like, mm, really? Really? You didn't do that? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I had to uh, write myself into it, mm. unfortunately. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> did, did any of that initial, like, chapter outline slash self-help version remain or did you excise that? It actually came out in the same order. Mm but with more interesting stories yeah. um, and I think a lot more of me in there, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Um, I feel like hospo memoirs are often family stories in disguise as food writing. So we sort of come to them for that, that sort of secondhand, you know, thrill of, of reading, you know, hopefully food described really beautifully, but there's often that, that kind of core of a family story. And I guess... The, the idea of found family, um, and to use your own words again, um, you wrote when you were getting into hospital when you were quite young, I gelled more with hospitality people. No one's pasts were used against them. Being book smart was irrelevant and everyone was unapologetically themselves without the threat of HR being involved and there was easy access to all forms of mind-altering substances. Um, so I feel like the idea of found family is, you know, often a charged notion uh, or a sort of contested idea but I, I feel like if my extremely distant memories of working in hospitality are anything to go by it's also really true um, of the food and drink industry. What, what do you sort of think leads certain people into that line of work? Um, the idea of sitting behind a desk sounds horrible <laughs> and yet I do that now. Um, I think it's also you know, like, the structure and institutions are very, very, like, suffocating. And um, a lot of people in hospitality don't finish school because they do find the structure of school suffocating. And it's not necessarily because they're dumb, because the smartest people in the world that I've ever met are hospitality workers. It's because they don't like structural learning. Mm. And that's it. Do you think that there's... You know, I think one of the interesting things about this book is you, I guess maybe not explicitly at all times, but it feels very much uh, a narrative that is kind of class conscious, which I think, funnily enough, is often absent from from stories about kitchens. Um, and I guess this is interesting too because you know you're you're not a chef, so it's a different it's a different perspective in that sense. Um, but was that something important to you in in writing this book? Definitely, um, and I think. A lot of people love, especially these chefs we will not mention the names of, love writing about how important and artistic and incredible their creations are. Mm. But it's kind of like, who are you feeding? Who 
is your audience? Is it the 1% of the 1%? And that is what is so beautiful and amazing and artistic. Uh, or do you want to feed a community? Do you mm. want to create a different environment? And I think being on the floor and talking to customers um, <laughs> opens up that idea of community mm. uh, and who has access to this kind of food because my favourite people to serve when I was in fine dining, it wasn't the guys who would be like, I'm all in, I'm going to buy like the $1,000 bottle of wine and I want this and like all the add-ons plus truffle and blah. It was the kids from the country who booked a hotel room in like the cheapest place they could find, have gone away for the weekend and they pay with like a little sack full of all their coins and like savings and you're like, you were the best customers to serve tonight. And they're like, we're sorry, we couldn't tip you enough. Mm. And you're like, I don't care, you were lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I think, I, I mean, you know, well, MasterChef is always the kind of elephant in the room of any discussion of food in Australia. And we'll probably touch on it a couple of times tonight. But it, it's definitely been interesting, I think, in the past couple of years watching that shift away from this idea of, you know, what is good food, um, you know, and what is fine dining. And they've almost kind of rocketed to the other end of the spectrum now where it's like only humble food from your hometown. Um, but do you think that that is... Is it kind of tied to the, like, Australian cultural cringe, this idea that, you know, that we allegedly have no cuisine, you know, that there's no Australian cuisine oh. in a kind of overarching sense? Yeah. Um, I think it's really difficult because at the end of the day, a television show mm. created by a network uh, for prime time uh, where the executives are of a particular demographic <laughs> and the executive producers... What demographic is that? I can't imagine. I... <laughs> and the executive producers are of the same demographic mm. and it all trickles down and everything has to be signed off. At the end of the day, like, they're still representing cuisine mm. and food through the white gaze. Yeah. Um, and it's only when you have the opportunity to tell the story with someone from a particular... with more diversity that it's the true story because... You know, they'll still have white chefs making Indian street food. They'll still get another white chef making Thai food where they serve a southern curry with a northern accompaniment and be like, it is authentic. <laughs> I was particularly pleased to see you skewer, amongst many things, um, fusion, which feels... I mean, I don't think it's unique to Australia, but it does feel like a real scourge. Scourge. We were just talking before about how, you know, when you do a podcast or your audio book, you realise there are all these words that you've never actually had to say out loud. <laughs> scourge. Scourge. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was something that I really relished because it did feel... I mean, I don't know, it sort of feels like it's dropped off a bit now, but for a while it felt like everything was fusion here. Oh, God. Uh, it still is, except they just say that it is uh, authentic. Ah, it is authentic and modern. It's modernly authentic. Is this like that restaurant, I think in Belgrave, that used to have a, um, a marquee that said, we specialise in, and it was like four or five different completely disparate cuisines, which I kind of loved. It was like, we specialise. It was literally like, you know, Italian, Indian, Mexican and something else. Like, is oh, that yeah. the pan? Is pan the new fusion? I think pan is the new fusion. Uh, one of my friends, who is actually the person from the first chapter 
that I'm eating ramen with sent me a message yesterday that is like, this menu is so wild, but I kind of want to eat it. And it was like regional Chinese hot pot dishes and then burgers. And it's like, not going to lie, those hot pot dishes look really great. And it's like, if I eat a burger, I'll tell you how bad it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, so, I, I think, you know, for a long time, you were one of those voices in Australian food writing or sort of food writing adjacent, you know, obviously social media was a big part of it. Um, and, uh, you know, along with the dearly departed cook suck, I felt like you were one of those very keen um, kind of commentators on the Australian food discourse. What What is it that you love about writing about food as opposed to working, working with it? Oh, I guess working with food, you're providing a service. So you're mm. always going to be its biggest champion and not point out faults and like, you know, you'll be like, oh, what a great thing. You'll, you'll, Worried about everyone's experience. What a great hot pot burger. Yes, delicious. Um, Yeah, you're worried about everyone's experience. You want them to have a good time. Mm. You don't want to mar their good time with pointing out all the faults from service that night, which you are yourself experiencing. But I think writing about food, uh, there's so much more to it. It's not just about what makes it to the plate, what is technically done well. Mm. Um, You know, it's the right temperature. It was cooked a particular way. Uh, But you also get to tap into culture and politics, uh, which I think is really, really important, especially uh, to get away from all the pan. (laughs) (laughs) To get away from the hot pot burgers. Wow, that's really blown my mind. I think um, (laughs) one of the the things that I read this week, because obviously getting ready for this event, I was very much enjoying watching your book, uh, you know, go out into the world and seeing all of the reactions to it, having read it, you know, earlier... Um, and um, I think it was Sophia Levin said it had a poignant front-of-house perspective of hospitality from the all-seeing eyes of someone who isn't a white man. Do you feel like that front-of-house positionality, if you like, um, was a way to cut through some of that myth-making about food? And particularly, I guess, you know, what we kind of expect a food memoir to be, which is typically a chef memoir? Well, uh, first of all, I didn't bang anyone in the toilets. (laughs) Um, mainly because they notice if you're not on the floor, um, your section is gone. It's falling to pieces. You're in the weeds. There is one truly amazing women's toilets anecdote, which I feel like I won't spoil for anyone who hasn't read the book. But it was very true. It's very, very disgusting. It haunts me to this day. The smell is in my nose. Mm. Not not that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, God. Uh, I think it's... I think people needed a front-of-house perspective, um, especially because, you know, every chef who writes writes a memoir um, <laughs> is very brilliant, is an artist. You know, you cannot compare all the things from their past that is now in this dish. It is pain, it is glory, and now it's in your mouth. Whereas, like, you know, when you're a front-of-house person... Uh, first of all, you know, back of house treats you like crap. Uh, the customers treat you like crap. Your colleagues treat you like crap with affection. Um, <laughs> but it's it, it's very humbling. It's a humbling experience. You kind of see the best parts of people, but you also see the worst parts of people. And then you can categorise and go, the worst parts of you are actually not that bad. Um, and it gives you this incredible filing system for humans 
that back of house don't have because mm. their only interaction is with front of house. And according to back of house, all the front of house are pains in the asses. <laughs> but we're just the messenger and you just want to shoot us. <laughs> that, that filing cabinet full of people, what was the process of, you know, deciding who you would pull from that archive when writing this book? Uh, well, I don't want to get sued. Um, <laughs> I don't want someone else to get sued. Um, I don't want to out someone else's terrible story that they haven't told people who should know, who shouldn't know. You know, like th those little things. Don't want to incriminate anyone. Um, but I think, you know, just pulling these... And also I wanted to tell my story. Mm. And even though other stories from other people were a lot more interesting or devastating or hilarious... I'm like, no, I should only incriminate myself. This is my mess. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent, like, wh what was that dance like? Because I think, you know, writing writing a book, which I guess also I, I went into in a similar kind of headspace to you, which was, it's a memoir, but I don't want it to be, but it's sort of at arm's length and it's about me, but it's also about other stuff. I'm using myself to kind of tell these broader stories. Um, what is that that, what was that balancing act like in terms of, working out when to, you know, focus on yourself, if you like, and when to kind of pull back to that, that wider focus? Um, I think it kind of goes back to the what perspective has not been offered in the hospitality story yet mm. or what story needs to be told that hasn't been told enough or with a particular insight. Um, and at the end of the day, we are all telling stories about the human condition. Mm. And I think in hospitality, especially pre-COVID, uh, everyone treated waiters like robots, uh, whether they were front of house or back of house. Uh, you know, you look at your colleague and you're like, what do you mean you didn't show up for work today? You only have the flu. <laughs> uh, Soldier know, on. Yeah, you know, just take a couple of codrol, have a shot, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was it... I mean, was it bittersweet writing through COVID? I mean, we're still in it. But but I think, you know, writing in 2020, there was a genuine kind of existential question mark about so many things, um, you know, whether that was the arts or live music or going to a club ever again or, you know, eating in a restaurant. Like, was that... Did you feel that there was a kind of extra level of reflection in a sense I mean I, I, I'm sure you didn't sit there thinking well this is it restaurants are over forever but you know watching the industry shut down watching places close that weren't able to pivot like did that did that make it that sort of elegate quality of reflecting on your experiences in the industry more difficult no more acute? I think my biggest thing that I wanted people to take away from this was uh, don't be an asshole. And mm. if you think you're not being an asshole, you're still being an asshole. Um, and just kind of regulate, you know, we're not saving lives. Um, I know you're hungry, but you're not going to die if your food doesn't get to your table in the next five minutes. <laughs> um, and if you need your food quickly, uh, maybe have that conversation with your server and they can direct you to the proper dishes to order. <laughs> On the topic of fast food, well, food being delivered fast, actually, I really enjoyed... There are so many, you know, small anecdotes in this book um, which are just... You, you could expand out to a whole book or a whole chapter, uh, which I loved about it. It was a very... felt like a very dense read. Um, but one of the ones that I was really struck by, um, because, you know, to my great shame... I mean, I'm autistic. I eat a lot of chicken nuggets. Um, I like the idea of 
great food, but I, I wouldn't say I have a limited palate, but it was really nice to read you talking about fast food restaurants because I think people would perhaps go into a book like this thinking surely everybody in the, you know, real food business um, looks down on the big four. And I was, it was a fascinating little detail that you said, what is it, that if you've worked there, you should keep it on your, on your resume. Basically, if you work in one of these big restaurants, whether it be Macca's or Hungry Jack's... Macca's, Jackers, Kentackers. All of those. It's like you were taught a system. You were taught a system. You have to learn it. Um, you don't have your notes with you. Customers are either irritable, drunk, in a rush, and you just have to deliver them the experience. And they want consistency. And it doesn't matter where they are. If you're in a country town, if you're overseas, they want consistency. Mm. Um, and having worked at one of those places demonstrates to an employer that you understand systems and that you understand a particular standard and that you know how to clean yourself. <laughs> oh. um. <laughs> the chicken nuggets are clean. Thank you. <laughs> um. I feel like also there's a really strong sense of place in this book. Um, and it was interesting, the, the, the anecdotes and the, the passages that I felt really kind of resonated strongly. I was often surprised by that. Like there's one sequence where you go to Crown with, you know, with a friend and uh, it's, it's a very entertaining chapter. Um, and, I, and I was really struck by this feeling of how dare they make me feel nostalgic about the Crown food court. Like... <laughs> And in the book, it's just, you're just passing through, you know, on the way to the, the High Rollers Lounge. Um, but did you kind of rethink your relationship to Melbourne in writing this book? Um, you know, was it an opportunity to kind of reflect on how the city has played a part in your life and in your work? I, as much as I write about how many things disturb me about the industry and all the venues that I've worked at, which are all inner city. Uh, I love Melbourne. I love all the uniqueness Melbourne has to offer and all the horrible things that we have here as well because all the good things wouldn't be appreciated if we didn't have the disgusting things mm. like Crown. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's you can't really tell a hospitality story without... A scummy visit to the crown, to the crown, <laughs> or any to casino. The Bay Marie. Oh God, <laughs> those 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 delicious smells. Mm. They are not clean chicken nuggets. No, they're not. <laughs> I don't think anything's clean there. But yeah, it was. It's it's. There's a very kind of live. I think that that sort of sensory quality. To this book is really strong. Um, and I wonder also how you kind of balance that with you know, those sort of scummy moments and in some cases, you know, quite traumatic things that you've written about. Um, but I think what really struck me the whole way through was it has this very clear-eyed, unsentimental tone, um, which is very you. Um, <laughs> but, but, that I, but, but in doing so, in kind of playing it straight, in a way it felt almost more moving than if you'd tried to kind of wring every ounce of pathos out of it. Um, and I can imagine in less capable hands you know some of these experiences might have been written about either with too much sentiment or, or sort of scandal or sentimentalism sensationalism um was it tricky to 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 navigate that I guess there's a demand out there for you know what we might call misery memoir I think when we're writing the you know the first person industrial complex that we both 
kind of held at arm's length for a long time. Like, what was that process for you and, you know, how did you keep yourself safe um, writing through that? I think what a lot of people want and I, like, you know, in the process of, you know, pitching and getting someone to be like, would you like to write a memoir? I was like, well, I don't want it to be trauma porn. Mm. And there's so much trauma porn out there, especially from non-white people, non-male people. Um, and they expect it from anyone who isn't a cis white man. And I was having this conversation with one of my very well-read friends. Um, and she says, if I'm not being triggered, it doesn't feel like I'm reading. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, you it's easy to be triggered. You don't need to take the knife, plunge it in, mm. twist it around, you know, light it on fire. Like, you can just mention something. And I kind of had that in the back of my head. Mm. I also... Um, very uh, recently read A Little Life and I was like, this is just so much trauma. <laughs> that groan of rage. So much trauma <laughs> porn. And, you know, I angrily read it to the point where I was like, I need to get to the end now. And there's just so much, like, mm. I didn't want to tell it like that. And I also was very conscious of not telling a story that would deprive Melbourne of future generations of hospitality workers. <laughs> uh, that being said, I have received some DMs from people going, that's it, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> You've solidified what I've been thinking about all, COVID, all over COVID. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, Melbourne. Well, I, I was wondering also, you know, you talked about how that's not something that's expected of a certain demographic of, of authors. Um, is there, did you feel that pressure to, you know, represent um, as a kind of model minority, if you like? Because I think, you know, well, we mentioned MasterChef before and obviously, funnily enough, I feel like cooking shows are often where we see diversity on TV where, you know, neighbours may at rest in peace took a long time to come to the party. You know, we could look to um, either cooking shows or docu-reality, docu whatever they call it, factual entertainment... Um, to see people who weren't people who looked like the executives. Um, but, I, you know, I'm thinking about there's a passage in the book where you write about wrestling with that sense of guilt at working in the pan um, <laughs> uh, industry. I, I, I should just note, I'm not talking about pansexual people, I'm talking about, like, pan-Asian. Um, and, you're, and you're talking about working... better in the other pan. <laughs> You're talking about working within this this idea of, you know, cultural appropriation, which is just rife. Um, you know, it still is. We feel like we've kind of had a great success when somebody has to change their menu and, you know, not have cocktails named after war crimes. But um, but you, you talk about how you've got this idea of, you know, one bad Asian makes us all look bad. Like, was there... Was that something difficult to navigate as you were writing it? Or was it not even on the table? It was kind of in the back of my head because at the same time, like, I grew up in a time where it was like, I want to make myself less Asian because then I'll fit in. Mm. And then I just swung all the way back around and was like, you know what, I'm really Asian. Like, I can't hide this. Um, you know, my food's delicious. Yours is dry. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, in writing this and, you know, growing up, 
Um, I also wanted to say that there is no right way to be Asian. There is mm. no right way to be Australian. Um, and, you know, this idea of being bad or the bad Asian uh, really is just a reflection of our own insecurities and being perceived a particular way. Um, and it is all just internalised racism mm. of wanting to change yourself. And that's kind of what I meant by one bad Asian. Um, because it's like, who are we Who are we pandering to? Who are our demographic? Mm. Which community are we servicing? Yeah. And who is the good Asian? Like, what does that look like? Was there also a sense of, I guess, you know, you talked about that, that the desire for, for misery porn or trauma porn. You know, was there also a sense of um, a kind of audience expectation regarding what is understood as, you know, extremely heavy air quotes implied the Asian family experience, um, you know, or that experience of growing up, of growing up Asian in Australia? Like, was that um, a kind of dance around experiences that are universal and then others that have become caricatured or kind of expected of certain narratives? Oh, man, like, this is so hard because at the same time, like, I think for the last few years, uh, subtle Asian traits, it's all in our, it's all in our cultural consciousness and we love it. I laugh at it and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> which is just the whole page. Um, and it is a shared experience, but we all also walk away from it differently and we choose to take it on differently. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to get across in this book. Mm. Um, you know, you can... I know people who are still very, very damaged from things that happened to them as a child uh, because they put too much weight into it or it's just, like, with them forever. Um, and it is like any other trauma. Uh, and it's also about forgiveness mm. um, of people and of yourself. Uh, yeah, and it's... You know, yes, everyone has a lunchbox moment, but what are you going to do with it? Stop eating dry food. <laughs> it's true. In fact, it's sending me back to when I worked at the Italian restaurant and my order became so well known that I would just walk into the kitchen and Billy, the chef, would yell at me, yes, yes, I know, entree, spaghetti bolognese, plus capsicum, plus olives, not too saucy. <laughs> Devastating. Um, <laughs> was, it, was it in that, in that way... A healing experience to healing you know feels so high and mighty but you know in writing the book do you feel like you worked through anything that um you know you had been working on for a while I mean I I, I don't know it's like it's tricky when you do memoir because people go that must have been very therapeutic for you and it's actually revolting oh it was but awful. then <laughs> so is therapy so I guess yeah it kind of is it kind of is therapeutic but was that was that an experience that you had writing this um not really because I think Everything that I put in there is, like, things I say to my friends in private or in public. Um, <laughs> but obviously things that I haven't been able to publish before because it is, it is not the opinion of the media group or the opinion of the publisher or it's too political. And you're like, too political? It's food. Everything's political. Mm. Um, so I think it was just a really good opportunity to get it down and uh, shove it into people's eyeballs. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear you talk more about that idea of, of food being, you know, this kind of like apolitical thing, which 
I think is a very common uh, approach, probably in a widespread, but I think particularly in Australia. Um, and it often it often comes up when there are questions of cultural appropriation, um, Pan Asian, you know, ramen and burger restaurants, like that people will go, oh, it's just food. Um, do you feel like food is kind of the ultimate political uh, topic in a way? Yes. I mean, even today I was discussing with someone the idea of inflation and they're like, I haven't eaten this in so long because it's so expensive and it's like, not if you go to a farmer's market, not if you educate mm. yourself and look at like sustainable food systems um, because they're not gouging you because they're always going to grow the same amount of things that they grow. Um, their only reason to jack up the price is if there is a flow on effect for them, but it is still affordable. Mm. Um, and it's that idea of like, we want everything now, we, like immediate satisfaction going to a supermarket. And it's kind of like, think about the idea of a supermarket. It was created to make things convenient. Like maybe go back or act like an ethnic person and have to go to more than one place to do your shopping to make a meal. Wild. Well, it's been very interesting too, I think, the amount of narratives that we've seen in the last month or so of, have you considered Asian greens? You know, you can't buy an iceberg lettuce this week. What about Guy Lan? Like, um, which is, you know, there's, I, I'm, I always read that and I go, oh my God, you know, is this helpful? Is this bad? Like, it just feels very, like it's still for all of the kind of MasterChef moments that we have where everybody's like, I would love to eat that Bengali dish. Like, it does feel like there's still so much, um, I don't even know how, how to describe it. Like, this idea that this is just another world, you know. The, the idea of Asian greens, in inverted commas, or, or you know, tripe or offal or, or going and getting a kilo of, like, chicken Maryland bones and turning that into a stock instead of a nice, tidy chicken frame. Like... It's hilarious because, like, when I first got into hospitality, my experience of cooking was always Cantonese food. You know, my dad had one cleaver and I'm like, I'm going to use it. I'm not allowed to, I'm going to use it. <laughs> and it's like, you use the one knife for everything. And then I go to, you know, learn learn how to cook in a particular, you know, framework. And they're like, yes, French, blah, you have to learn a different language, but we don't pronounce half the letters. Um, <laughs> and all the cuts and all the names, and here are like all the knives. And, you know, and I'm like, this isn't very efficient. Um, but I learned it. And I think I kind of went into the food industry with that perspective of like, I don't know what to do with this. I guess I'll figure it out. Mm. And I think the general public need to like figure it out, like mess it up a few times, understand if you like the flavor or not. <laughs> like I, I feel that because of food media, and yes, I'm guilty of like causing part of that hype around certain things. Yeah, it's all your fault. <laughs> this is actually an intervention. Um, it's one of those, like, do you know what you actually like? Mm. Or are you just liking things that people tell you to like to look cool? That's it. And, and you're not that person because chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets. I've really sold myself short. I do eat other things, but I do also eat, you know, a microwave cheeseburger. I'm not ashamed to admit it. Um, and they're always on sale. Uh, but, you know, it's funny, actually, because I was reading, I was reading your... Um, interview that you did with Good Food this week, which I thought was really fantastic, where you were just out and about shopping in Richmond. And, and that gave me such a, a jolt of nostalgia because we used to go to Victoria Street every weekend to go and get a pandan chiffon cake. So 
you know, I think I think what is really beautiful about this book is that there are a lot of kind of, you know, crack knuckles moments where you can really feel the cleaver kind of pulling up and coming down on certain aspects of the Australian food scene. But it also has this, uh, you know, incredible love for food and for those kind of specific moments of, of um, you know, shared experience that we have over food. Um, so, you know, thank you for that. And I hope, you know, I hope that that comes across. Like, is that something that you hope that people get from this book? Oh, totally. Um, I want people to understand that food isn't entertainment mm. and they can have a good time and consider it and think about it and walk away with it leaving an impression on them that mm. isn't just, wow, I spent a lot of money. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I haven't done a lot of fine dining. I was taken to a couple of restaurants back in the day when you could claim lunches um, for tax and they were very nice and I, I'm not the sort of person who would go, all oh, fine dining is meaningless. But I do think that the moments that you remember are typically... Uh, I mean, and I'm, yeah, in saying this, I sound like someone who hasn't been to a Heston Blumenthal restaurant, I guess. But, you know, I feel like there were moments in your book which really kind of brought home that idea of sometimes those really powerful moments with food being very humble. I think there's a misconception with food and, you know, with dishes that more is more, mm. more is fantastic, more is like this cerebral thing that you have to like dis like dissect. Um, whereas like the hardest things to make taste good have the fewest ingredients and is probably only one technique and you get one chance to make it good. Um, <laughs> and we've lost the appreciation for that. Mm. I don't know if anybody else follows Jess on Instagram, but um, they have been making bread for a couple of years now. And I just I've been documenting it for a couple of years. It's incredible. The previous ones, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, I really appreciate watching you try that, and also these very satisfying bread squish videos, um, which you know speak to me in my autistic soul. But um, yeah, it's nice to watch you documenting the process of things not necessarily working out either, because I think that that is a real. Um, barrier for a lot of people with food and with cooking it themselves but I guess also choosing where to eat the idea that if you choose to go and try some cuisine or you go to a restaurant you don't like it or it wasn't so good oh well everything's ruined you know I'll just go back to my cow path to the supermarket to buy my $12 iceberg lettuce um, I feel like at these sorts of events and we are going to have some audience questions I should just say in case anybody's thinking ahead um but I feel like at these sorts of events, you know, you often ask the writer, oh, what are you reading at the moment or what are you working on next? But but I'm interested to know, like, what are you eating at the moment? Has Is there anything that you've eaten recently which has really blown you away? Oh, um, I am forever trying to find just, like, really beautiful, like, ethnic cuisines, whether it is Laotian, Cambodian, Vietnamese... Sri Lankan, like anything that is just like something that I would get from someone's mum. Mm. To me, like they are the best meals. And, you know, I was having this conversation uh, with my publicist yesterday where it's like, oh, you know, everyone goes out for pho, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of like the measuring stick. And it's like, no, you will never get better pho than from someone's mum. 
because they have been laboring over that with the best ingredients where it's the freshest stuff. And that broth hasn't been going for six hours. It has been going for 48 hours. <laughs> and you can taste everything. And then there's like that, mo that generosity mm. and, you know, the family secret that they will not pass on. And, um, you know, they're just sitting there with their hands clasped going, do you like it? <laughs> do you like it? And even if you go, this was incredible. I've never had a better bowl. They're like, but really? <laughs> Tell me again. <laughs> Yeah, that generosity of spirit too, I think, is something that comes across in your book. And it's 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 a book that I guess will be described in, you know, like the bio that I read, you know, that you're one of the uncompromising voices of Australian food writing, blah, blah, blah. But I think what I hope people um, take away from it is is that it's a very, to me, it feels like a very generous book. Um, and I think it would have been easy and maybe there was a draft at some point which was more cynical, which is not to say there aren't moments of cynicism in it, but, you know, I feel like this is a real kind of gift um, uh, that people maybe won't... I think it'll creep up on them, you know. I think I think people will come into this book expecting the no-holds-barred kitchen confidential kind of thing and they come away with something different. What do you hope that, that people will get from reading this book, other than to DM you and say, I'm quitting the industry? Um... I just hope people have a better appreciation for other people uh, in general, from all walks of life and all classes, all backgrounds, uh, because at the end, like, it, this book is about people. Mm. Um, it, it's kind of about my interaction with people and how much I appreciate them. Um, yeah, and we are not robots. Who knew? <laughs> Um, so we do have a couple of roaming microphones out in the audience um, and we've got some time for some questions. I just want to make a note uh, before we kick off, just in case anybody was thinking of asking any questions about abuse or suicide, um, that we'll just keep them off the table um, for Jess's safety and also anybody else in the room who might not feel like they want to hear that sort of stuff discussed. If, however, you would like to ask about Hot Idiot or any of the uh, other salacious gossip in the book, um, this is your chance. I don't actually know where, I think the mics are like on the side of, there they are. Anybody? I think there's one down the front. I'm um, not holding my hand over my eyes to see you, sorry. I was told not to do it. It's Stephen A. It is, oh dear. Oh, I don't think this Oh, hello. Is this on? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Cleveland. <laughs> Jess, one of the things I love about, well, knowing you, but also in the way that you write, and particularly in this book, and I think you've touched on it as well in your, your questions today beautifully, is that idea of people. And, 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 you know, it can be a cliche, but when you're in the, you know, the, the height of service, there is that kind of we're all in this together. <clears throat> so I just wondered if you'd maybe want to, I guess, share one of the most, you know, it's really easy to, to tell the horror stories, but could you share one of the most beautiful moments that have happened when, when you've kind of been mucking in on one of those days, as I know very well, when hospital gets a bit crazy? <laughs> oh. There are so many good service stories where everyone's just got everyone's back. Like, you know, it could be a situation where you're like, okay, I have just worked like four doubles in a row because everyone has the flu. I know you've worked five doubles in a row because everyone has the flu. And it's just kind of like, 
you know what? We're going to do this. We're going to do it all right. We're going to get through. And then, you know, that one person who goes in for their first shift can see that everyone's suffering. So they make little snacks with all the fruit garnishes for cocktails <laughs> in the bar and they're just like, here. Yeah. Or they just put it straight in your mouth or they make a little teapot of rum. <laughs> and they're like <laughs> and they're like we are drinking tea it is the same color <laughs> we're fine but you know it's it's those little things and like they're small actions but they're very very generous um and even you know old chefs that i had who knew that i was just so burnt out and you know i didn't work a double shift so i wasn't entitled to a staff meal according to the restaurant's rules but they snuck away a little plate for me and they're like please eat you look like death <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that generosity is something that if you've i don't know what the like minimum amount of time spent in hospital maybe six months a year you know but like um i feel like it doesn't leave you like you know, I worked in that Italian restaurant for two years and I still feel like there are moments in your book where you talk about going to somewhere that's getting slammed and, you know, you and a mate will, like, go and bust some glasses or help out behind the bar or, like, help the kitchen. And I feel like, you know, that that feeling of camaraderie doesn't leave you. Oh, no, never. Like, even when I had my bar, there was one night where all the systems were run off something online. <laughs> and online went offline. And uh, who knew that no one knew how to write orders anymore? <laughs> and it was a Friday night and we just got broadshat. Um, <laughs> there were people lining up in the rain to get in. And I was like, we can do this. Um, and someone who had quit the bar industry was like enjoying not having, you know, bar rot fingers for the first time in their life, came in for a drink because they were like, I have a Friday off. <laughs> and he's like, do you, want me to, do you want me to clean up? Do you want me to do this? Like, and you're just like, no, you're a guest. <laughs> but thank you. And that, that it never leaves you. Mm. Like, you just can't say no when someone's going down. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, is that a going down moment? Yeah. Um, is there another question? I think I heard a microphone tap somewhere. Oh, there's one at the back and there's one down the front. Maybe we'll do front first and then rear. That sounded... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that one was That's like for me us. next week going in for my uh, colonoscopy and gastroscopy, a double. Front first, then rear. Okay, uh, front question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I love it's that. It's all the chicken nuggets. I love that this has been recorded. <laughs> um, so from a sort of technical writing perspective... You know, writing about food, you have a clear objective. And then when you turn it to memoir and you start talking about pretty heavy things, and don't worry, I, I did hear you, <laughs> um, we, but you did touch on writing about trauma and things like that. Talking about food, it's obviously for an audience, but when you write about trauma, how much do you have to switch off thinking about an audience to write about it? Because for people who have been through stuff, you can talk about it quite sort of blasé and make jokes and mm. then you think that you're not actually getting anywhere or making a point or you delve into the trauma porn 
and then you're selling a salacious story and it's actually not your experience because your response is to make jokes. And so how much do you have to sort of switch off that constant thinking <coughs> about the audience to tell an authentic story that comes from trauma? I think in that position, you know, I hate to bring it back to food, but it's kind of like, do I want to eat it? Do I want to read it? Um, and if it's too much, you just remove it. A very simple answer. And if you don't remove enough, that, that's what the edit is for. Mm. <laughs> Did you also have a, like a, a bleak draft? I feel like I had the like howl into the abyss draft where my, my publisher was just like, I don't know what... In a, in a very kind way, but was like, I, this feels very kind of bitter and sad and I'm not sure what the, the kind of intended audience for this is. <laughs> um, that was my first draft. Very surprisingly, I had a very soft touch, but they did request an epilogue so I didn't make everyone cry. It is a very nice epilogue. But the epilogue made me cry, so joke's on them. Um, <laughs> did the microphone make it up the back? Oh, no, I did it, sorry. I said Hi. I wouldn't. <laughs> Um, I want to know if you've got a B-side version with all the names in it. <laughs> no, but that's what buying me a drink for later is. <laughs> is that going to be like when Carly Simon auctioned off that she would tell you who your Sovain was written about for charity? Maybe there's a, an option there for somebody who wants to make a lot of money for charity. You can get Jess to give you the... But the no, I will boss. never reveal the names because we're going back to I don't want to get sued. <laughs> Uh, was there another question out there? Yes. Uh, hi. Um, my question is about the concept of cultural appropriation when it comes to food. So um, I grew up in a city called Calgary in Canada, which was very much a food desert <laughs> as far as, like, good food. Um, and my whole life changed the very first time I ever ate a banh mi, which is when I was about 14 years old. It was the one and only banh mi place that opened in Calgary. And I completely fell in love with it. And then a pho place opened near my high school. And me and all my friends were completely obsessed. And then we found this Korean place nearby. And it was the first time I ever had bulgogi. And it was like, this is what opened up my sort of eyes and my, really helped me develop my sense of, you know, the brilliant, how brilliant food can be. Besides like the basic boring white people food I've been <laughs> eating my whole life. And so like for me, if I was gonna, you know, if I was gonna open a restaurant, and that was really true to me and what I really loved, it would be those tastes. It would be the first banh mi I ever had, the first bulgogi I had. Because for me, that's, that's like what really deep down, like the food I connected with the most. But I feel like if I were to do that, that there would be some people that would say, it's inappropriate for you as a, as a white person to, to, to showcase that. And I'm, I guess my question is, do you believe, is there a, a space or an appropriate way for a for a white person like myself to still express appreciation for other cultures without it um, being appropriation? Oh, this is such a difficult question because I just had a friend in Bordeaux ask me the same thing um, and he sent me photos of his product and I was like, this looks really crap. <laughs> so first of all, like, please don't sell that. Um, but it's also like, you need to think about Dispossession, food dispossession. Why are you serving these foods? Um, is it for profit? Who are you? Who's your community? Who are you telling you love the food to? Are you doing enough respect? Do you understand the cultural history? 
Um, what's your connection to it? And then obviously when you decide to change it or take liberties, like where does that come from? Does it come from a background and cultural understanding or not? And like, I think as well, you, I can't stop you from opening a restaurant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Fatality. <laughs> but are you hiring the right people? Mm. Are you amplifying the right voices? Are you giving back to the right people? Um, and kind of at a certain stage you'll be like, oh, what is my role in this then? Um, and I think you just have to ask yourself those questions. Do you think it's a question of collaboration? I think it's a question of respect. Yeah. Oh, well, I was wondering also, you know, this idea of like the bun me price index. I um, mean, some of you have probably seen that meme with a whole bunch of cool haircuts and it said, when this haircut appears in your neighbourhood, the price of bun me is going up. <laughs> but there's this, I, there is this idea that, you know, certain foods, and they are typically ethnic foods, should be cheap. You know, that we, that we don't value them in a way that, say, we value... I don't know, a French patisserie or something. Um, oh, my God. It's like I made a podcast to prepare for this question. Well. <laughs> it is called Bad Taste. Listen to it. Um, it's very good. <laughs> it's very good. And their mic technique is exceptional. Thanks, Beth. <laughs> um, look, I... It's that question of, like, why does it have to be cheap? Mm. Are the ingredients cheaper? No. Is the labour cheaper? No. D are there, like, different regulatory rules for them? No. You know, are they still going to be stung for tax and whatever evasion and, you know, like, paying people properly? No. But also at the same time, it's like the only reason why something is cheap is because someone down the line is getting effed. Hmm. And, you know, you might complain about the price of something, but it's kind of like, okay, uh, why are you complaining uh, if you're going to spend X amount of dollars on something else that is made with less consideration or the same consideration? Uh, what does that say about you and how you value other cultures? It really breaks my heart. Like, you know, it's a sign that you see so often... Um I went into my local Vietnamese bakery the other day and there was, you know, a little handwritten sign saying, basically, like, we're so, 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 so sorry we've got to put the price up 50 cents, you know, that there's this expectation that this is a place you can just come and throw some change on the counter and get amazing banh mi. Um, what do you think... Because I think there's some interesting grassroots stuff happening with, like, young um, chefs and, and business owners who are saying, no, you know, you can come here and now buy me is $15, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not $6.50. Like, what do you think is, do you feel like we're kind of slowly starting to head in the right direction in that sense? Is there a, a more of an appreciation for the value of, of food? I hope so. Mm. But at the same time, I hear these stories um, from people who charge the correct amount for their food uh, where people from their own community and uh, maybe you know white people will be mm. like why is this the price um, there are horror stories I see things on TikTok where they're like is this the most rip off insert dish here I've ever had oh gentrification and it's kind of like do your research everyone just do your research mm. um, and again internalized racism why do you want your own food to be so cheap? 
um, have you not made it before? And a lot of things that I've encountered is that people in my generation don't know how to cook their own cultural cuisine mm. because their parents did it for them and they only go out for it and they're like, it's not as good as my mum's. It's like, yeah, it's not as good as your mum's because your mum uses like the most expensive things they can find. It's super fresh. They probably killed it themselves. They probably grew their own crap to put garnish it with. Of course, it's not your mum's. <laughs> Um, is there any, I think we've got time for like one more question. Is there another hand floating? There it is. Um, I want to know how you picked the cover image. That is me. <laughs> but, wh wh but why <laughs> this? Why this picture? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, stock image, Asian bowl cut, emotional damage. <laughs> Two dollars purchase. Yes. Alamy.com. <laughs> um, so basically, the publisher wanted a photo of me on the cover because, like all memoirs, if there's a photo of you on the cover, it sells more. Um, and oh, is that the mistake I made putting glitter on the front cover of my book? I think your book has sold quite well. <laughs> um, but, you know, I am also like, I write because I don't want to be seen. <laughs> Um, so the compromise was use a very traumatic photo of me from the past, giving you the death stare at three years old, uh, because that is a loophole. There is always a loophole. <laughs> but also not, like, do the face. Like, yeah. <laughs> that... <laughs> I feel like that was my first impression of you. And then I learned I was wrong. Um, well, I think we've... Oh, maybe there's one, room for one more. Has anyone got a small question? A small... Yeah! Hey, that sounds like a guy who knows what he's talking about. <laughs> that sounds like a guy who gets commission. <laughs> yeah, what is next? We can't, we can't avoid it. I've asked you what you're eating, but yeah. Are you, do you have plans to write anything else? Because I think um, there are going to be a lot of people hungry uh, to hear what you... Sorry! <laughs> you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> Time to drown myself. Um, I will be writing a novel with a firm. Fiction. Yay. Yay. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So when people come up to you and say, oh, I love that character that you created for this book and you say, actually, they're real, you can say, but wait till you see what I am writing next. Well, you know, let's face it, everything in fiction is based on some asshole. That's right. <laughs> And on that note, um, <laughs> Jess, thank you so much. And thank you all for coming. Uh, Mary Martin Bookshop are up the back and will be selling copies of Jess's book, if you don't have one already, uh, for the Melbourne City Reads price of $23 um, this evening. Uh, this event was presented by the Wheeler Centre as part of Melbourne City Reads and generously supported by George and Rosa Morstan. But most of all, I would like to thank Jess Ho for writing one of the best books I have read in a long time and a book that I think is going to um, change a lot of people's lives and hopefully open some minds. The sign's telling me time's up. So please, round of applause for Jess. <laughs>
Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.